Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this week by Blue Apron and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. We are back. Yeah. Um, post-eclipse, back in our homes. Uh, eclipse uh, journey over. But uh, thanks to everybody out there for the nice things they said about our Eclipse episode, which was unusual. It's the only time I've ever recorded a podcast in a hotel room in Winnemucca, Nevada. And I hope <laughs> it is the only time I ever do that. But uh, people said nice things about the Eclipse episode, so that was fair. that was good. It was a departure for us, but it was fun. Yeah, we got a bunch of emails and tweets from people sharing their Eclipse stories. It was a lot of fun uh, for, I think, the whole... Uh, the whole group of liftoff listeners who got to experience it together. It was just a fun time. I look forward to doing it again in seven years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And I got to see some of those uh, comments roll in while I was still in the car driving home because you posted that episode and I was just in a car that day for the whole day. All day. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Well, we have uh, a bunch of stuff this week to talk about. A whole bunch of stuff has happened. There's a bunch of stuff to go over. Uh, but we want to start um, in Houston and in Florida, uh, the two areas, as, as we're recording this, very recently affected by Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. Obviously, our our thoughts and prayers and support for all those people affected, it's a terrible thing. Um, but from the liftoff perspective, NASA has locations both in Houston, uh, NASA <laughs> Johnson, and yeah. obviously uh, Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And so it's always interesting to see how the government, how NASA responds and prepares for these things. Yeah, they were right in the right in the middle of it. So they had, um, you know, in Houston. I know that they were there were people working working like during the hurricane. It sounds like their facilities were not particularly affected. I would imagine the people who work there had their homes affected, though, to a certain degree. But it sounds like the NASA facilities were not deeply affected. Yeah, they because Houston has a lot of twenty four seven stuff. A lot of the um, International Space Station support is out of Houston. Um, the James Webb Telescope is there undergoing testing. Yeah. Uh, so there was an article in the Atlantic about hey, the super expensive telescope that is perpetually over budget and over schedule is now in the the direct line of a hurricane, but it seems to have come out just fine. Like you said, there it really seems like where NASA is located in Houston was was relatively okay. Uh, compared to the other areas. And Johnson Space Center, um, you know, they went down to essential-only personnel, but, like, the flight control room is there talking to the International Space Station, right? So the flight director's um, story on the Atlantic that that I saw um, says that, you know, the flight director for the ISS basically just drove in on a Sunday night and slept in his office and and started his shift the next morning because what... You know what can you do? You gotta you gotta be monitoring the space station and all of that. So they had to do that, but it sounds like they were on a skeleton crew, and it looks like the they were all you know all sorts of backup stuff that they had for the the James Webb telescope, so that it, they were ready in case they had any issues. We moved to Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Of course, it is on the uh, the eastern side of Florida. Irma ended up kind of swinging west and hitting the western uh, coast. So Kennedy Kennedy did not take a direct hit. Um, But it seems like it could have. So uh, the vehicle assembly building and a lot of the other buildings are built and designed and rated for hurricane force winds. It's just part of being in Florida that you got to be prepared for that. Uh, But Kennedy was spared a direct hit. 
supposed to reopen September 12th, which is the day this will be released. Uh, no word on damage yet um, out of Kennedy, but it seems like they missed the worst of it, which is which is good. Yeah, they're, you know, you're sitting on the coast there. Uh, you've got these big buildings and other big structures, and they, they do try to do what they can to make it safe for, uh, because they're going to get, you know, they're going to get high winds and lots of rain and all mm. of that. But it's good. Good. Nothing uh, has been reported to be particularly damaged. Yeah, I, I read an article too. There was supposed to be a launch, I believe a ULA launch from Vandenberg, and that was actually postponed because a lot of that stuff is all interconnected with Kennedy and, and with Kennedy basically running on a skeleton crew like Johnson did, they sort of had to scale back some other stuff. And so there's a, there's a, a launch that will be, I think it's scheduled now for next week um, out of Vandenberg that you know gets tied up in all this because all, all those systems are all interconnected. We didn't, uh, just as an aside, uh, there was a SpaceX launch um, recently. There was, was right? That, was like that... uh, last week? Yeah. And that was uh, that was uh, pretty fun because it was a, uh, it's the Air Force's classified space plane. Yes. That which... The last time we, we talked about it, that it, it stayed in orbit for like two or three years and then they finally brought it back and it was going back up again on a SpaceX uh, rocket. And so... Um, for those who love watching the first stage return to Earth, it was great because usually SpaceX is kind of, um, you know, they want to promote the fact that they are delivering the payload. So they want to say, well, you know, the reason we do all of this is the, is to for that first stage is to go to the second stage and then the satellite gets launched. And that's what this is really all about. And the first stage is an experimental thing. Well, this is a secret Air Force mission, basically, right? So they didn't talk about what was it, what the payload mm-hmm. was. And when they did the first stage separating from the second stage, you never heard them talk about the second stage again. It was all just about the first stage returning. And it did actually, this was a ground-based return uh, to the landing site that is on the Cape, and uh, so it was a it was a fun thing to watch because it was full on just watching the return and the pictures were spectacular and it basically hit the hit the bullseye again. So that was all pretty great. But the uh, it's the other side of it is like we're not going to talk about what the payload is. Yeah, yeah, that's not. And it was military. the and it was like the last big activity before people started leaving. Florida, yeah. right? So, like, if this gets delayed, they're going to have to pull it down and try after the storm. Uh, but they they got right, off the ground, like you said. Last thing you want to do is roll that thing back. So mm-hmm. they they got it, they got it off, and and then presumably pulled the first stage off and got it into into cover somewhere before uh, before hiding <laughs> from the storm. We talked about the eclipse at the beginning of the show. There's a uh, an article. Uh, there's a a lawsuit, federal, a proposed lawsuit, excuse me, um, by a Southern uh, South Carolina couple. They bought glasses on Amazon. We talked about this, that there were some defective glasses going around. And this couple bought some, unfortunately, and then used them, which is even more unfortunate and now experiencing uh, partial blindness because of it. Um, August 19th, so a couple of days before the eclipse, Amazon had alerted customers that they... Uh, that they had record of purchasing these glasses that were not up to the ISO standard, but it seems like it was too little, too late, according to these people. I, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. Like you were warned, there's lots of things out there to pay attention to, but at the same time, right? Like you just go on Amazon and buy something. I think you trust that it would be what it says it is. Um, it's definitely a complicated situation. I'm curious how you feel about it. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if the, if the they truly bought what were sold as Eclipse glasses and then somebody um, had eye damage because they were fake, then somebody should be held responsible, right? I'm not sure whether that's Amazon. If Amazon is, you know... Is Amazon literally supposed to check every single product that is sold in its store to make sure that it is what's claimed? Or is the person who put those glasses up and purported them to be real who knew that they weren't? Or at what point in the chain did something get... If if it was uh, made to be basically a phony, who's that person who's at fault would strike me? Because is it reasonable that Amazon is going to literally check every single set of glasses that are on Amazon and every other product, too, for safety? It seems like they're going after the... um the big pockets here, which I understand, but I, 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 I'm not sure I really uh, think that that's, a, that's the right way to do it. Uh, it's sort of like following the money rather than like, I don't think it's reasonable to ask Amazon to do that testing. I think it's somebody else in this chain of events that is the problem. And obviously they got alerted at some point, and maybe the argument is that Amazon needed to do more to alert when Amazon realized this batch was bad than it did. And I can see that. But... Um, I, you know, beyond that, I don't actually know. It's interesting because the company that apparently made them is some is a company that my that seems to be legit. So I, I my question is like they 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 they're playing this as being that it's defective, and I just I wonder. It's obviously a terrible accident, but again, I'm not sure. If the argument is who made these, that's not Amazon. If the argument is Amazon could have done more once it found out that they were. Uh, they were defective. Okay, but like the manufacturer is apparently not even part of the lawsuit, which is just bizarre. So I don't know. It's 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 weird, but it's scary, right? Because a layperson is not going to know whether um, classes are okay or not, right? There's no way to to test it. Really, you have to take the word of the of the uh, of the manufacturer. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think it's a good point that you know it's it's upstream of Amazon, if you will. Yeah, I don't know. I, I saved I saved ours though. I've got all of ours, and yeah, me too. Uh, I've I've stored them away for seven years hence. Yeah, they'll be ready for next time. Uh, be pushed pushed into action. There were actually some people uh, we didn't talk about in the eclipse episode, but there were people where we were at the state park that had brought extras to like share with people, and uh, I thought that was kind of nice. I, you know, everyone I talked to. Um, you know, about their glasses in particular, was like, yeah, like we looked on the NASA website, or you know, we looked at at planetary you know some reputable source not just going on amazon but i think people like the people i was with they all traveled there right like no one lives in the state park probably but if it just happens over your backyard you may be more casual in your preparation i think maybe that's where you get stuck um so yeah plan ahead for 2024 yeah. this week this week ends on a sad note jason so <sighs> yes. september 15th our friend cassini will Smashed into the atmosphere of Saturn to be no more. That's right. We have uh, on on Monday the eleventh. They uh, the burn or was, was there a burn? There was already a burn. The, it, it, the Titan flyby that is designed to basically aim Cassini right for Saturn, so it goes and just sort of smashes into the atmosphere and breaks up and uh, sinks into the uh, deep deep atmosphere of of Saturn lost forever so that it doesn't contaminate any of the rest of Saturn. So that happened on Monday. And so, yeah, Friday, I believe the 15th, they, it will be pointed at earth 
radioing everything that it possibly can. I think it hasn't taken its last pictures yet, I think, but it will take its last pictures um, sometime in the next couple of days. And then um, at the end, it won't be taking pictures anymore because the goal is going to be to use the instruments that can tell things about the atmosphere of Saturn as it descends to, you know, obviously, basically, it's going to transmit that those as long as it can. And then at some point, something will break. And then that'll be that. Yep. So that and that all happens on the 15th. And then that and that's it. And then Cassini is gone. No. It, it's a that was my Cassini. No. It's good. It's the end of a 13-year mission, and as many people have pointed out, it is the the beginning of a, a relatively quiet period of outer solar system exploration. After this, we just have Juno and Jupiter, and we have New Horizons, which is streaming into uh, or you know out past Pluto towards its uh, 2014 MU69 friend that it will see uh, next year. So it, it, it's a it's a quiet time as far as exploration and scientific discovery and i think that's uh you know emily talked about that when she was on the show um it's something that uh, i would i would like to see a more concerted effort moving forward to have you know like like now and we've talked about this with missions that are being pitched now it's not a, a fast thing to get something to the outer solar system right it is years of playing there are people who've worked on cassini their whole careers and uh, we're going to enter a quiet period where there's there's nothing going on out there. Well, we we have nothing in transit, right? Even if things are being worked on, nothing's in transit, and it takes these things years to go. And you're right, Emily pointed out, like even if it doesn't feel like it at the time, because we had all that stuff going on with New Horizons and Cassini and Juno, like we you can really start to feel it now that as these things drop off, there's nothing coming mm-hmm. behind them right now, at least not in transit. They are working on things, but nothing has been launched. We don't have a, a, a probe. Um, that is like, oh, well, this one will be in Saturn in or at Saturn in eight years or something like right. that. No, that hasn't happened yet. So there's going to be a, a real gap once Juno's mission is done and once New Horizons passes its last rendezvous where outer solar system wise, we're just going to have nothing. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah, that's it. So we, we've got a bunch more to talk about, but do you want to tell us about our first sponsor? Sure. Topics aplenty, but first... This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Blue Apron, the number one recipe delivery service, and it's got the freshest ingredients. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone while supporting a more sustainable food system. They have high standards for their ingredients, and they're building a community of home chefs. And they do this because for less than $10 a meal, they deliver to you seasonal recipes along with fresh, high-quality ingredients that lets you make delicious home-cooked meals in 40 minutes or less. Every meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and all the ingredients you need pre-portioned. There's no food waste going on here exactly what you need to make that meal and the freshness guarantee promises every ingredient will be there already ready to cook or they will make it right i've been doing blue apron for a couple of years it has completely changed uh, the food that we ate eat we were really in a food rut and now we get not only are we remaking our favorite blue apron meals ourselves during the week but we've still got two brand new blue apron meals that we get for the whole family every week and then uh, you know you draw a little star next to that recipe and it becomes a favorite for a future week uh, among the meals that you could try these are some actual 
Blue Apron Meals, soy glazed pork and rice cakes with bok choy and marinated green beans, skillet vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits, garlic butter shrimp and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. These sound complicated, but you can make it 40 minutes in your own kitchen. They provide the ingredients and the recipes and you do the rest and you get fresh ingredients, freshly cooked, and you feel a sense of accomplishment because you made it yourself. There's no weekly commitment. Only get deliveries when you need them. If you're uh, not feeling it for any certain week or you're going to be gone, you just skip that week. They don't charge you. It's fine. You can actually pick what recipes you want on their website and you can check out this week's menu and get three meals free by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. Three meals free with your first purchase, including free shipping. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to make these meals at home with Blue Apron. Get started by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. Thank you to Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So uh, President Trump has uh, named a uh, nominee for NASA administrator. We spoke about this several weeks ago, right? I don't know if he's been... Formally nominated, but they've they've in, they intend to nominate him. I, I'm not quite sure um, if I've seen like the formal nom- nomination, but it's going to be the formal nomination of Jim Bridenstine, who's a Republican uh, re- representative from the state of Oklahoma, and it was announced that he is going to be the selection. He's um, an interesting guy. He's on the House Armed Services Committee and the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Um, he has some background in this in the sense that um, he was a pilot in the Navy Reserve, so he's got an aviation background, which is a part of the NASA culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the former executive director of the Tulsa Air and Space Museum and Planetarium. So he's definitely really interested in the subject matter of this, you know, from his committee uh, membership and his previous job and the fact that he is a naval av- aviator. Um, but his educational background includes no scientific um, subjects at all. I think he's got um, multiple bachelor's degrees in uh, social sciences, uh, and uh, then he's got an MBA. Um, and the big issue with him that it makes this an unusual uh, potential appointment is he's a politician. He is a member of the House of Representatives. And that makes a lot of people uneasy. And And you might say, well, of course, you know, anybody who's a Republican representative is going to make Democrats uneasy. But both of Florida's senators, um, and that includes, you know, Marco Rubio, who's not a Democrat at all, he is a Republican, have expressed some concern about it, mostly because the feeling is if there's any part of the federal government that is less politicized, which doesn't necessarily mean like that NASA isn't political, it's super political. We've talked about that here. But in terms of the, the, um, the parties, in, in terms of the the, uh, the two main ruling parties of the United States and how everything is sort of us versus them, that uh, appointing one of those politicians as the head of NASA could lead NASA and everything NASA does to be used even more as a push and pull between the two parties. And so mm-hmm. the Republican senator from Florida, Marco Rubio, said... You know, this is the one federal mission which has largely been free of politics, and it's at a critical juncture in its history. I would hate to see an administrator held up because of part- partisanship, he said. So, you know, his argument isn't even that Bridenstine wouldn't be qualified. His argument is, do we want to make this a partisan argument about NASA right now? And it sounds like it's not going to be a problem. Everything I've read suggests that um, that he will 
will likely be confirmed, although anything can happen in our current political climate. But uh, it is interesting to see that there are uh, Republicans, and of course, Florida matters. Florida is the home of Kennedy Space Center. They they feel like the senators in Florida, and I think all the politicians in Florida and Texas feel extra special focus on NASA. And so they have these, they, you know, to, to have them bring this up is interesting. Like, did we really need to go down this path where the president chose a politician as his nominee? But that's where we are. Yeah, I, I, found, I found it interesting that that both senators spoke out against him or against this even before it's official, before they move into the nomination process, which of course can be lengthy. And like you said, it could, it could get derailed uh, pretty easily. Um, I think too, though, there's, there's the, the debate about his background uh, the lack of a scientific background. um, And there's the, the climate change issue. Um, where he so the Washington Post um, says that his views have evolved and he's not a climate change denier, but uh, in in the past he has he has spoken at times um, uh, lending credence to the thought that he does not believe in climate change or does not yeah. think it's 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 uh, uh, affected you know that we're affecting it as as, as humankind which. Thing. <laughs> uh, it's interesting the context of it because definitely when his name was floated, I saw a lot of people say, "Oh boy, great climate change denier in charge of NASA." That'll be right. great. But if you look at the details, I, I, you know, I, I am willing to be proven wrong, but I'm a little skeptical. I feel like, first off, he's elected as a Republican in Oklahoma. He's probably not going to come out and give a big hug to climate change. I think I feel like you you don't get elected as a Republican in a very conservative place like Oklahoma talking about climate change. Right. But that line that gets called up where he basically professed some doubt about the rising of temperatures. He was like, oh, well, the temperature of Earth hasn't risen in the last 10 years, which is not right. It's provably wrong. Um, and he said that. But the funny context is he was arguing for funding of weather forecasting in more money for earth science and weather forecasting. Mm -hmm. Um, He just was saying like, and the way he put it was the Obama administration wants to have this all go into proven climate change when we should be, he lives in Tornado Alley, basically in Oklahoma, we should be focused on weather forecasting. I think in the end, um, he sounds like somebody who cares about earth science. And when we've got these hurricanes and everybody, Everybody, uh, uh, somebody, I forget who it was, somebody who's involved with NASA said that they once had a, a fairly high-ranking member of, um, of Congress uh, say that NASA didn't need to bother with weather satellites because they could just use the weather channel. <laughs> Which is amazing because, of course, all that data comes from NOAA and NASA and weather right. satellites. And yeah. the Weather Channel, you know, that is re- the recipient of it because we have the federal government providing that information. He seems like somebody who gets that. And he may be accepting of the political reality that he needs to not talk about climate change and not have it be his focus. And the fact is, the president and this administration has made it very clear, like, they're limiting. They don't want to see the phrase climate change in, in grant proposals. I mean, there's lots of issues involving this. But I, I, if I read between the lines here, this does not strike me as somebody who's going to say, let's stop doing earth science. Because it, it, it's more like he's going to say it under the context of the hurricanes that we've just had and other things like that. Like, oh, of course it's important. And uh, instead of it being frame, earth science being framed around global warming, it may be framed around weather and climate and things like that. 
but it may be in the end not that different. Um, it could be worse, right? I mean, this is not this is not somebody who has made their career about denying science, and that's good. So, so I guess what I'm arguing is, on one level, this might be um, this might be one of the better outcomes possible given who's doing the nominating. Uh, and given where the uh, the position of most of the people in the party in power has been in terms of science, this might actually not be so bad. But uh, it is there are some concerns there. Um, a I, I should mention also, you know, we, we said the two Flo- Florida senators. The other Florida senator who's not Marco Rubio is Bill Nelson, who is not only a, he's a Democrat, he's also a uh, uh, somebody who went into space when he was a representative, he was on the space shuttle. So he cares about space a whole lot. Yeah, I'd and, say they, so. and they and they both and that's why it was an interesting bipartisan statement from the two senators uh, that they were concerned about the the partisan nature. I think is better to say partisan versus politicized because federal government it's going to be politics happens, but um, it's going to be politicized. But does it need to be partisan? Um, who other things about uh, Bridenstine? Um, he thinks Mars exploration should be a priority, but he also says uh, that the moon may need to be a part of that. The sort of stepping stone argument. Also, I think he's spoken about it in the context of other countries being interested in going to the moon and sort of thinking like, well, if China's going to go to the moon, then we also need to go to the moon because we can't let China have the moon. Things mm-hmm. like that that he's said. So, um, he, you know, he he's obviously somebody who cares about the subject matter. Because he, given his work history and his positions on these committees, um, but and 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 I've read some people who've said uh, positive things about him. But you know, the bottom line is he is a uh, a politician who's a sitting member of the House of Representatives, and um, I guess we'll learn a lot more at the hearings because there will be presumably presumably he will continue on this path and get formally nominated and they will schedule hearings in the Senate to approve him to be the NASA administrator. And we'll see, you know, I'm sure he'll be asked lots of interesting questions and that we'll follow up with more when that happens. Cool. So we are continuing our series on NASA's crewed space programs. Last time we spoke about the origins of Mercury, um, the seven men selected to be the first uh, astronauts, uh, first American astronauts, this week, we're going to talk about uh, the first two orbital flights. Uh, but first, Jason and dear listeners, I want to tell you about our second sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Eero. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Eero have created the dream Wi-Fi setup, a fast, reliable connection throughout your house and even, and this is important to me, the backyard. And now is the best time to get aboard with Eero. They've just released their new super slick second generation devices. This is a tri-band model along with the Eero Beacon, which is this little uh, wall-mounted base station, has a nightlight on it. It's really nice. And these things work together to let you build a Wi-Fi system that's perfectly tailored to your home. The new second-generation model has a third 5 gigahertz radio, making it twice as fast as before. It lets you do more than ever. Whatever your Wi-Fi needs are, Eero has the power to blanket your entire home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. The base station sits flat on any surface. Just plug it into the wall with the included power adapter and you're ready to connect your Eero either via Ethernet or wirelessly. So you don't have to run cables all over your house. These things can talk to each other over the wireless. The new Eero also includes a new thread radio, which allows you to connect low-power devices like smart door locks, doorbells, and more. 
And Eero, like I said, they just introduced this new Eero beacon. Plug it into a wall and expand coverage into any room. You can add as many beacons as you want as long as you have an Eero device as the main hub. They include a built-in LED nightlight with an ambient light sensor, so it knows when the lights go out. So we have one in our hallway. We had a nightlight there already. The Wi-Fi was bad in the back of the house. The beacon has taken care of both problems for me. The Eero app lets you manage your network from the palm of your hand. You can easily create and share uh, guest networks, change settings, all sorts of stuff right from the iOS app. And their customer support is amazing. You can call and get hold of a Wi-Fi expert in just 30 seconds. Before Eero, I just had one base station in the house and I had dead spots. Uh, forget trying to do anything in the yard. The phone would try to hold on to Wi-Fi and not be able to. It's very frustrating. And with the Eero, I've got nice coverage all over the house. The setup process was easy with their iPhone app. And it was just it took me no time at all to replace my old network with something much, much better. The new Eero system starts at $399 for one second-generation Eero and two beacons. That's everything you need to get started. Listeners of this show can get free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada when you head to Eero.com and use the promo code LIFTOFF. That's Eero.com with the promo code LIFTOFF for free overnight shipping. We thank Eero for their support of this show and Relay FM. Yay. All right. So we are going to, uh, to jump back into the Mercury missions. We talked last time or two times ago now about the suborbital missions. So going up, but coming back down. And this week we're getting into the the orbital mission, so capsules that made it all the way, uh, all the way around the Earth. And John Glenn holds uh, the the title of being the first American to orbit the Earth. Uh, he they used the larger Atlas rocket. We talked about those as well. Uh, he needed more horsepower to get into orbit to, to fall around the planet. He made three orbits in just shy of five hours from takeoff to splashdown. So still relatively short missions, um, but. Five hours is a lot longer than like the 15 or 30 minutes they were talking about before, um, but still relatively short compared to later missions. And, you know, it's it's hard to put yourself in the mindset of this, but at the time, this is February 1962, no American had been in orbit and only only the Soviets had done it and they weren't exactly sharing what they learned. So NASA didn't really know what to equip Glenn with, so they gave him an extensive medical kit, including morphine for pain relief and drugs to treat shock and motion sickness, as well as a stimulant, because they just weren't sure what the human body, how it would react, uh, which is really funny now, right? Like, it's it's so well known, but it's such a different time back in 1962. Um, he finally launched on February 20th after numerous delays. In fact, the original date was like January 16th, and they had several issues uh, with the Atlas's fuel tanks. Remember, this was uh, a missile that they that they they <laughs> upgraded to put uh, a, a capsule on top of, and so there were some issues. But once it was off the ground, it performed perfectly. Uh, in fact, computers at the Goddard Flight Center calculated the trajectory was so good, Glenn could have flown 100 orbits. So, despite the rocky test and the sort of uh, uncertainty before launch, once the thing uh, took off, it it did what it was. It did its job, which is always good. Absolutely. Um, John Glenn was, because he was the first American in orbit, he was the first American to see sunrise and sunset from space. Um, interesting thing. So when the sun rose over the Pacific Ocean, he reported seeing thousands of little specks, brilliant specks, floating around outside the capsule. 
This is depicted in the right stuff, by the way. It is. He was briefly disoriented, and then he went on to describe them as fireflies until they faded away. Um, nobody really understood what he was seeing, and they didn't know if he was kind of like going crazy, <laughs> or if that, w- or, he, or if he discovered aliens or whatever. Um, but it is thought now that it was condensation that froze, and then, uh, then I think melted off and flaked off. That it was, it was basically stuff from the spacecraft that he was spotting, uh, which is not surprising. But it was an unexpected effect. Um, that that John Glenn noticed, and the, so we got our fireflies in space. Um, at the start of the second orbit, the Segment 51, which is a sensor that provides data on the spacecraft landing system, indicated bad things. The heat mm-hmm. shield and landing bag were no longer locked in position. It's not good. That is spectacularly bad, because if it's <laughs> accurate, what it means is the heat, heat shield was only being held against the sk- spacecraft by the straps of the retro package, which we talked about last time, and I think referred to this, the fact that um, they have the retro rockets that fire to slow down the capsule and drop it out of orbit so that it can return to Earth. And the idea was they fire those rockets, then they jettison the retros, and then there's just the heat shield. So um, if this, so so here's what happens. John Glenn is start, starts to be like, hey, everybody. Why, why are you asking me to check the uh, the landing bag deploy switch? <laughs> yeah, like why why you why you uh, why are you having me confirm the positions of switches involving landing equipment? I was a little <laughs> bit suspicious that maybe there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, while this is going on, Glenn is also struggling to keep his spacesuit cool. He ended up triggering a warning about cabin humidity, and so he ends up in this situation where he's trying to balance cooling the suit enough so he doesn't overheat while not filling up his capsule with hot steamy humid air so it's kind of a back mm-hmm. and forth the rest of the mission i think adding to that 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 stress like people are asking about the switch and the suit's acting up um but thankfully those are the only two things that that acted up everything else was going well he was able to manually control the spacecraft's attitude um he ended up using more fuel than the automated system would, which is a, an issue we'll come back to later uh, on, a, on a later mission. But it ended up not being a problem with only three orbits. He had plenty of fuel. He passed mm-hmm. into his third orbit. And uh, as it's going on the ground, as you would imagine, uh, crew on the ground are kind of debating what to do about the Segment 51 light and the retro pack. Some argue that they should keep the retro pack on. So if if the heat shield had come loose, the straps maybe could hold it in place. I think there was concern that if they did that, how would the capsule behave? Would it would it come down as smoothly as it would otherwise? Um, Glenn had reported when asked that he heard and felt no banging around. So if the heat shield had come loose, he should have heard it kind of moving around the outside of the capsule because um, it would still be attached with the the retro straps, but you know not affixed hard. Uh, but none of that seemed to be present, so there was thought that maybe this was a faulty, uh, faulty warning. But uh, again, no one, no one really knew, and uh, I think that added to the, the stress of this big time. Yeah. So in the end, what they decided to do, very clever. This is like a little mini. This is like a mini Apollo thirteen going on here. Mm-hmm. What they decided to do was after they fired the retros, don't jettison the retros. Because 
if there is an issue, if the heat shield may or may not be, you know, ready to go, just hold on to the retros and the strap, and it keeps it. It's some added. Um, it presumably burn away at some point, right? But they're going to be like, we're going to hold on to it and it'll, it maybe it'll help, maybe a little bit just to protect it a little bit longer, the heat shield and to hold it in place long enough. Maybe, right? Like, no, I think their thought was it, it's l- more likely to help than to harm. Mm-hmm. So they didn't jettison the retro pack. It did burn up during re-entry. John Glenn reports pieces of the material are being blasted past his window. He's concerned that he's lost his heat shield <laughs> right. as he sees this junk flying by his window. Yeah. Um, but uh, it wasn't. The heat shield uh, was intact. John Glenn uh, was able to come through re-entry. Parachutes open. He lands in the ocean. He is an American hero to be celebrated and giving uh, ticker tape parades. And after the mission is over, they figure out that it was a faulty sensor switch. The heat shield was fine. And uh, that was the, the source of the Segment 51 warning light. So, oops. But better safe than sorry. That happens. Totally. Um, you know, my uh, my dad was a had a he was a private pilot and he had an airplane for a while and at one point he had his uh his landing gear sensor lights didn't come on mm. and that was a problem because how do you land without landing gear and he actually they actually had him fly over the airport oh, so, uh, they, so could, they, they could, could see. look and they said no they're down and it, there's still a question of like, are they locked or are they just dangling? But uh, he landed; it was fine. It was a bad sensor, right? But that, that you don't know, right? And you still have to you have to land. You have to come back to Earth eventually. So, um, you know, in, in this case, faulty sensor. That's good. They did what they could. But the story could have been very different, right? That would have oh, been yeah. if the first person, first American in orbit, had. Mm. Uh, it's not good. Had not made it home. That would not have been good. But it's fine. John Glenn was fine, and he went on to live a very long and interesting life. Yeah, and and had the the heat shield been loose, you know, the, these Mercury missions are stacked so close to each other on the calendar that because they were trying to reach the moon by the end of the century, that w- or the end of the decade, excuse me, that was the that was the goal. That was the the challenge put out by the president and. I would imagine that any sort of like really catastrophic hardware failure like that, even if Glenn had been safe at the if the straps had held it all together, it would have affected later missions. But like you said, it's just a faulty sensor switch. They got it fixed up, and uh, now in May uh, 1962, uh, we're back for another another launch. This is aboard the Aurora Seven, Scott Carpenter. Uh, Carpenter's mission really stands out because it was the first science focused mission. Up to this point, it was about Let's get into space. Let's do suborbital. Let's do orbital. Let's make sure we don't need to be uh, stoned on morphine the whole time. Let's make sure we can do it and stay uh, with it. Um, and so that that was all behind them. And uh, this one was science focused. There were a couple of experiments. Um, most of them and most of the experiments during the the Mercury years are about visibility and like and and about like just the mechanics of flying uh, in low uh, Earth orbit. So he released a multicolored balloon that was tethered to the capsule. And the idea, it was designed to study how colors and visibility changed throughout an orbit. Because think about it, if you, you know, with, with Apollo, you've got a, a dock with things in space. And there was no reference for that. And they had to understand what visibility would be like. Hey, if, if this thing is painted orange, you can't see it. But if it's painted green, you can. None of that was known. And so they started doing these these tests with these balloons to see... Um, how things would go. 
He was also tasked with observing the behavior of liquid in a weightless environment. So they had liquid in a closed glass bottle using a special light meter to determine the visibility of a ground flare, which ended up being like a cursed uh, science experiment. Like they tried that with all Mercury missions after this. I don't think they ever saw it because of like cloud cover and stuff. But again, like visibility, Hmm. like what can we see? How do we have points of reference to know where we are? Um, And then taking a lot of weather photographs with handheld cameras um, and carpenters that the first uh, in addition to being the first like sort of scientist in orbit was the first one to have solid foods for the first time. Uh, freeze dried cubes in a plastic bag. Turns out super messy. Uh, he was, he was concerned about, uh, crumbs and food stuff getting behind switches and interfering with instruments. Um, so that, that was kind of a little bit of a mess, I think. But, uh, this, this Mercury Atlas seven mission, the first one where science was really the heart of what was going on. Yeah. Did we mention that this is Aurora 7? Uh, yes. Yeah, we did. Yeah. In, in continuing our, our, our list of, of sevens, I just like, you know, there's everybody's got a, their own seven. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, try different freeze-dried food later, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> or put everything in a, in a cup with a straw or something. Um, you got to try and see what happens. So Carpenter comes around for his third and final orbit and uh, a mystery assault because he bumps his hand against the inside wall of the cabin. And guess what? Fireflies. Ooh. And it turns out that, yes, indeed, those were those ice particles theorized. Not aliens. uh, Again. That John Glenn. Not aliens, again, Mm. and not uh, John Glenn being uh, Luffy. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the bumping the cabin shakes loose ice particles from the exterior of the spacecraft and ejects them. And they light up and they look like fireflies. It's pretty, pretty simple. But... Uh, the mystery solved, so that's good. Um, reentry was not so hot for this one. Not so hot. Um, he um, Carpenter's distracted by the fireflies a little bit. So pretty. And uh, so he, he gets a late start on all the processes for coming down. Um, he flew the ship manually for a while without turning off the automated system. So he was uh, fighting the automated system and wasting fuel and getting a little off course. He activated his retros three seconds late, which ad- added 15 miles to the splashdown trajectory. Because three seconds here to slow down tra- takes you a lot further along in your orbit. Um, he ended up overshooting his planned reentry mark 250 miles Ouch. from his target. Oops. Mm-hmm. Um, and NASA was not impressed with Mr. Scott Carpenter. And in fact, he would not fly in space again. That was unlike so many of these Mercury astronauts who got other chances to fly. Um, he he didn't. He did participate in the Sea Lab program, which is not the same. But he didn't uh, fly in space again. That's a bummer. It's a bummer for Scott Carpenter. Yeah. I hope those fireflies were pretty. Yeah, I, I was sort of surprised reading this uh, that. He made, I mean, and all, you know, all seven of these guys were the cream of the crop test pilots, right? They'd been through all this terrible testing and planning we talked about several weeks ago. Um, but to make two sort of mistakes like this back to back, it just really surprised me preparing for this. And, and you could see why NASA responded the way that they did in, in sort of saying, hey, you know, uh, one and done for you. Yeah, I mean, he did. He did get have an injury. Um, he took a leave of absence to train for Sea Lab. He had a he had a, a motorcycle accident, mm. 
and um, they they ruled him ineligible for space flight. Um, but uh, you know, there was a tension as depicted in lots of different media between the astronauts and the flight controllers. And there was a perception that um, they were frustrated with Carpenter and they were blaming him for these issues, whether or not that was fair um, that they were blaming him. But regardless, he never flew in space again. So uh, that, that brings us through two of the four orbital missions. I think we'll wrap up uh, Mercury next time. So I'm almost through with the first, first, uh, First project. Almost done. More sevens to come. Mm -hmm. Uh, So many, so many sevens. If if you want to read more uh, about these missions or anything else we've talked about this week, you can do so at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 55. While you're there, you can get in touch. There's an email link. There's a link to our space tumbler, uh, which we, we keep up with. And of course, lots of Twitter links. The show is at liftoff podcast. Jason is at Snell on Twitter. And you can find me there as ISMH. So until our, our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.